primary job of the church is to create an alternative society of justice and equality that is multi-ethnic, that is based around love and compassion to offer the world a new way to be human and a new community to be a part of that in prayer affects the wider culture in an influential way, but not in a control-based kind of way. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Jason, it's so good to see you. We're doing it. It's We're so hanging out. It's so good to see you. The world is opening up in Canada one province at a time. There's a few provinces that are a little behind and we're feeling for you and with you, but it's so special to be here. I love today's episode and I love some of the other projects and things happening through the Church Leaders Network. I feel like it's starting to take shape, the whole vision, and it's pretty exciting to see it play out. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I saw the Steve Carlton video that Anne did. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what she's been doing with those short videos and what's happening there? Yeah, that's a great example of sort of these little projects that are emerging that have always been kind of at the core of what we're doing. We've always wanted to be so much more than just, you know, conversations on this podcast, which we hope are helpful. But one of the things we wanted to do from the beginning is help people see that amazing things are happening in the church in Canada. And sometimes like just when you're in your own world, like I'm here in Vancouver, you're there in Calgary, we can miss what's happening across the country. And so you mentioned Stephen Carlton, he's up Work, he's, work, he's from Ottawa and grew up in none of it. And he's doing work in none of it to reach teenagers with the gospel. The suicide rate there is really high and he's trying to combat that. So he's part of a project called the Arctic Hope Project. And so what Anne did for us, and Anne's been part of the podcast as well, is she started doing interviews to profile these stories. And so some of those will be shared on our blog, others on Instagram. And even at the end of the episode today, we get to hear from Karina Shea, and she's from North York area in Toronto, and we get to hear her story. So we're going to take that on to the end of the episode. And it's just so special because uh, my hunch is there are amazing things happening all over our country that we don't know about. So if you are listening and you know of a story that needs to be profiled, please message us. We'd love to hear and profile stories about what God's doing through local churches and ministries across the country. Amazing. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing people's stories. But uh, before we jump into this week's guest, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happening this fall with Worship Central Canada? Oh, I love it. So the Worship Central Canada is an incredible ministry trying to serve local churches by training up and supporting worship leaders and their teams. And they're launching a program called the Academy, the Worship Central Academy. And the mission is to raise up proficient and God-centered worship leaders. You know, they want to increase the climate in our cities and our local churches of worship within the context of a local church. So what it is, it's an eight-month program. There's a weekly component. It's based in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And the weekly component is uh, lectures and an environment where they can grow in the understanding of biblical worship and then also practical hands-on skill development. On top of that, there's a mentorship component. And then there's gatherings and guests. It's an incredible program unique for developing worship leaders. So if you are a worship leader or you want to invest in the worship leader at your local church, uh, applications are open now. The program starts in September. And so I would check it out. Love it. Well, that sounds awesome. Um, this week is awesome. Also, we have John Mark Comer on with us. Uh, he's phenomenal. Many of you probably know him from his books that he's written or through the work at Bridgetown Church in Portland. I can't wait to hear about what he's doing. We know he's kind of entering into a new season. Um, and he's, you know, as he reflects on what life has been like as a pastor and um, the season ahead. Uh, why don't you tell us a little about what we can expect through this conversation mm. with him today? I think for me, the part that stood out the most was just the vulnerability of how painful the season has been. And I think it's been hard for a lot of us. And it's not just the COVID factor. There's other elements of like the criticism you get from sometimes your own church and culture. And oftentimes you're just trying to get it right, trying to love people well, and you feel like you can't get it right. So we talked a lot about um, things that a lot of pastors are experiencing right now. Like how do you say the right thing at the right time? And um, how do you show your heart and care? And we also talked about a ton of other stuff. That was just a highlight for me. I, maybe highlight's not even the right word. It was just a moment of vulnerability for me where I felt connected to. And he shared this idea of like uh, pastoring is suffering. And you just don't hear that very often. You hear like pastoring's this, pastoring's that. And here's another leadership book for being a pastor. I think that's great and helpful and important. 
Um, but this was an aspect of it that I hadn't thought about. And so I hope that for everyone listening, there's lots of encouragement, but maybe that that idea might start some conversations amongst you and other pastors for further reflection. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to take a listen in. So let's jump right into our conversation with John Mark Comer. John Mark, it is such an honor. You are, check this out. You are our only repeat guest on this Come podcast. On. You must besides, be at this point. Yeah, <laughs> besides the only other person that we've had more than once is uh, Daryl Johnson. <laughs> oh, who, who's like North Star. God, yeah. may I become somebody like that in 30 years. Yeah. We just record all of like my counseling sessions with him and just share it with everyone <laughs> on the podcast. And uh, no, it was a year ago that you and I, almost a year ago that you and I jumped on here and um, tried to make sense of like COVID. <laughs> right. And here we are a year later, at least in the Canadian context with very similar lockdowns, very similar restrictions, but more I'm angst, so... more frustration. This I'm is where so we're at. Sorry. And what's that like? I mean, I know it felt like, you know, Vancouver and Portland were on a very similar trajectory. Yeah. You know, the whole thing's politicized and we're living in progressive cities, and which means they're ironically very conservative about COVID in that odd little cultural moment we're in. Yeah. But it sounds like there's been a divergence. We're starting to open up a little bit. And you're not, huh? You've gone the opposite direction. How are you feeling? How are pastors feeling? How are yeah? Can I, I mean, I hear a little bit of pitter patter over the border, but not a lot. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I think doing a second year of Easter not together, like yeah. no Easter, was really just discouraging. It was just sad. Um, and then the other piece is such a unique pastoral challenge. Now, some pastors are doing different things, be more outspoken about one side or another. There's not a, there is like pro vaccine, anti vaccine, but not like it is in the States. It's not as politicized like that. There's a bit of that. But the biggest thing is just like, it's a horrible social experiment on the church itself. Like this community is, is, is really divided by so many things. I think that's the hardest thing for me as a pastor is I'm really grieving the fact that it's like something like this has become like a, a wedge. Like these people saw their families on Easter and they weren't supposed to. These people did. And it's like one more thing getting between unity and the church. And so that's, that's yeah. one of the things that's I'm, I'm, I'm being impacted by. Yeah. I mean, what a traumatic year, right? You know, and for you guys planting a church in the middle of it, I mean, I've been a pastor for 20 years now this June and man, by far the most difficult year mm -hmm. of all 20 without any parallel or no comparison, right? Easy first yeah. place for most difficult year. But yeah, that's been the great trauma is like, I felt like COVID was the least of my problems over the last yeah. year, year plus, you know, COVID, I think intensified what was and brought from the substrate to the surface, everything from racial injustice in our country to social media addiction to news apparatus and social media designed to stoke anxiety and anger to division in the church to people being captured by ideology on both the left and on the right, more on the left in my city, and I'm guessing in your church and in my church, and more on the right in much of other kind of more rural and suburban parts of both of our countries. What, what a sad and mm -hmm. hard year. And what made it more difficult is we're living through this kind of once-in-a-generation trauma, both COVID and the racial stuff, and yet we have to do it in social isolation. If there was ever a yeah. time when, man, do we need to be together around tables, hold each other literally and emotionally, it was over the last year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. And yet we are kept apart, you know, yeah. and whether that's right or wrong, whatever our opinion is, and we all sure. have opinions, man, I think we all agree. That's just been devastating on mm -hmm on our churches and on the world and on families. Like we're, you know, yeah. America has the acute problem because of the election of President Trump, where you have these brutal family, the main place I see the pain point show up. Our cities are so homogenous now, they're so politically left that it's less that, it's more generationally. It's like the divide between hmm. kind of millennials in our city and their older parents who tend to be very different on the political spectrum just torn families apart. I mean, parents and children that won't talk to each other, won't be around each other. I mean, it's just so many stories of pain mm -hmm. and trying to pastor through that has been, 
excruciating and liberating at the same time. I wanted to ask you, how are you making sense of the pastoral task in this moment? And by, by this moment, what can mean hyper, you know, polarized or politicized culture or the effect of the trauma of COVID. But like, I think it's a good question to always wrestle with. What is the pastoral task, you know? And, but how are you making sense of the pastoral task in this season? You know, I think that's a simple question that resists a simple answer. Hmm. You know, um, it's, it's a good question. Like there's that, there's that Rilke quote, the poet who talked about how we must live the questions. And there's certain questions that you don't really answer. You just attempt to live. Hmm. And what is the pastoral task, I think, would be a good example of that. I think that resists a simplistic, the job of a pastor is to yeah. dot, dot, dot. And I've noticed in my, let me say some things that might get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> four and a half years ago, there was a dramatic shift in people's expectations on me as a pastor. And I think it's very important to distinguish between people's expectations of a pastor and Jesus calling on a pastor. Hmm. I do not, I think there's places of overlap and places of great disparity between those two definitions of what is a pastor or what should a pastor be. Four and a half years ago in my country with the election of President Trump, there was a dramatic shift in, for the most part, millennial expectations on me, where all of the sudden I was expected to be an outspoken political activist. So because, you know, our city is very far left, very politically homogenous. Our church, because they're Christians, tends to be a little bit more center left, um, but still pretty politically homogenous. There were all these expectations where if you, I'm guessing that there was an impact or even a trauma on you up in Canada where President Trump was saying or doing something every couple of hours that was freaking people out. And so there was an expectation every Sunday that I would stand up. And a lot of people wanted me to basically stand up and make this like, 10-minute statement slash diatribe, diatribe against him or against something he'd just done on the border or whatever it was. And it was really disorienting to me because I, grew, I came of age where the expectation in the church tradition I came up in, I actually did not grow up in some like right-wing Jerry Falwell. The expectation was pastors never talk about politics. Mm. And um, that was the expectation in that culture, which was a kind of majority white, middle-class you talk about Jesus, you talk about the Bible, you never touch politics. And so now here's the opposite expectation where I'm expected to become like a kind of leftist political activist from stage in the name of Jesus, you know? And if I don't, there's all sorts of indictments against me. So it was a, it was a, it was a disorienting time for me that was, of course, accelerated by Black Lives Matter in my country last summer. And it's been, it's really caused me to have to probe and think and consider what is not just the role of the pastor, but what is the role of the church? And my original thought that prior to President Trump and prior to 2020 and Black Lives Matter, the kind of place that I had settled with very low dogmatism and very high, you know, hopefully humility and pliability to, I could be very wrong here, was that the kind of more Anabaptist vision of the church, that the church is an alternative society as the Anabaptist theologian Stanley Howrass said, the first job of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world the world. And he wasn't saying that we should not be about the work of social justice at all. If you know his work, it's not at all what he's saying. He was saying the primary job of the church is to create an alternative society of justice and equality mm. that is multi-ethnic, that is based around love and compassion to offer the world a new way to be human and a new community to be a part of that in prayer affects the wider culture in an influential way, but not in a control-based kind of way. And that's, and you look at the book of Acts and there is, and you look at the teachings of Jesus and there is so little said about the gross injustice of the Roman empire that most scholars argue it is a glaring and intentional omission. And the silence is actually designed to say something. Hmm. And there's much talk about justice and equality, but it's all within the walls of the church. For example, they took the Old Testament Millennial Christians love to talk about Old Testament theology of justice, which is great. 
but they tend to apply the Old Testament biblical theology of justice to the state. The New Testament writers, the early church fathers and mothers, seem to really apply that to the church, not to the Roman Empire. Now, you could argue that's because they were living in an empire. It wasn't a democracy. It wasn't an option for them to bring, you know, kind of the Torah's vision of equality and justice to the nation at a large. And that could very well be true. That's an argument from silence. We just don't know what Paul would have said if he was living in Canada or America or Peter would have done if he was living in France or England or, you know what I mean? We just don't know. My point is, I, my my original thesis was, I think the church is basically designed to be a town built on a hill, as Jesus said, or to be a community of exiles, the body of Christ in the world, an alternative society to embody in advance the reign of Jesus over a people in our imperfect, human, finite way in order to invite people to live under Jesus' rule now so they can live under Jesus' rule forever. And in that rubric of church as a family, living as an advanced sign of the kingdom, as an alternative society in the kingdom, one foot in it now, one foot not yet, the job of the pastor is very simply, in Paul's language, I labor and birth pains until Christ Mm. is formed in you. It's spiritual formation. It's to help. It's a motherly and fatherly role to nurture the, the birth and the growth and the maturation of Christ-likeness in the inner woman or in, inner man of every woman that it is our honor to pastor and to serve. The last four or five years, I've really called that into question because mm. a lot of people have wanted the church to be, and me as a pastor, to be much more politically active and a lot has been said about, well, it's easy for you as a middle-class white man to kind of not talk about politics and to kind right. of just focus on, you know, spiritual formation and forming an alternative society. And there were a lot of accusations. Like that's actually, you know, the whole silence is violence is very much a, a big part of millennial thought. So it's really caused me to go back to the text and back to the wisdom of the Christian tradition, which is something I think been really sad to see how few millennials have even attempted to think Christianly or historically Mm, about mm -hmm. the questions of our day. So they've tended to think ideologically and polarized rather than thinking Christianly and historically, meaning how have Christians, based on their reading of scripture, have we dealt with problems like racism before, injustice before, inequality before, the abuse of power before, plagues before, division in the church before? Has any of this been faced by previous generations? The answer is definitely yes. And how have they thought about it? How did they read scripture? What worked? What did not work well at all? What resulted in flourishing? What resulted in chaos? And you know, I'm, I'm thinking Christianly and historically, how would a Christian think about racial justice? How would a Christian with the New Testament as their primary kind of mental map, how would they think about politics and mental maps and those in power and and all of the the thousands of questions that have come up at a socio kind of economic and ethical level? It's been really sad to see a lot of people just jump right Mm -hmm. to ideology based on whatever world kind of culture they stream they swim in rather than really trying to think Christianly, much less critically. So that's not to criticize anybody. It's to say, man, I, I think there's a, it's really caused me to actually slow down, not speed up and really go back. Okay, what do I believe? And what is biblical theology and what's middle-class privilege that I've just been able to kind of not have an opinion on certain things, you know, because I'm, I'm fairly apolitical, like to a fault, you know, I'm get, I've gotten more political through the last year. <laughs> I've come to care a lot more about politics now that it's, it's not working, which is why often people that haven't been served well by our governments care a mm. lot more about politics than those of us who have. So I've learned a lot, but in all honesty, I've come back to those same convictions deeper than before. Mm. I think the primary job of a pastor is as spiritual director and kind of companion to journey with a soul on its kind of path back toward healing through union with God and to mother it and father it and to nurture and empower that kind of growing seed of Christ-like character in it through a life of prayer or whatever you want to call abiding. And the primary job of the church is to live as a family and an alternative society that welcomes people from the surrounding society in as they're compelled by a different vision of what it means to be human and humbly offers 
its alternative way to the culture in prayer and hope and intention that the culture will be influenced as the Roman Empire eventually was toppled in a sense by the way of Jesus. And you can, I was reading a great thing the other day by a historian who said the, one of the best mat- uh, metrics to chart the growth of the early church by is everywhere that the early church would spread, laws were enacted against the against violence and victimization against women through sex trafficking, because wow. sex work and sex slavery were just the norm in Greco-Roman culture, and really in all pagan culture of antiquity, until the gospel and the way of Jesus and the church spread. So he said the best way to chart the church's growth is to chart where laws were passed that protected vulnerable women. And so there are stories like that down through history, but we have to be honest, there are other stories like Iraq where and Egypt where Christians have been faithful to death and the church has lost influence and been literally persecuted to death at times. Mm. So it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you stand as a prophetic, loving, kind witness and you, and you topple the Roman Empire. Sometimes you stand that way and your nation is torn to pieces by war and persecution mm. and ISIS. And our call is faithfulness. We can't control the outcome of what happens in culture. We can control simply, barely even that, our faithful witness. But I have been thinking a lot about that Hauerwas line. The primary, the first job, meaning not the only job, but the first job of the church is not to make the world more just. It's to make the world more the world. And our primary call is to let Jesus shape us, not just as individuals, but as a community, to a community of justice and more. Hmm. So that everything I just said might be way off. That's my I offer that with a with a very loose grip. And please right now shred everything that I just said and I will gladly take it and listen. I just appreciate the conversation to be honest because I think even before COVID, before some of these movements, we weren't sure what we were even signing up for. Like I I think I'm if I be honest, I'm not trying to be critical. Like I'm just the biggest fan of pastors everywhere. For us younger pastors, I think the job description, whether we're managers, whether we're event producers, whether we're uh, like, do like we have a hunch that there's like, we're supposed to marry people, bury people, but our like, and teaching's part of it. But even what, what is our job as the teacher? Is it to attract, evangelize? Like, I feel like it was already vague and there was yes. just very little conversation happening. And then now there's external pressures telling us who we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I think if anything, I just think this question of like, because the criticism rolls in that you're not doing enough. And then you have to decide like, is the critic right though? Because not yes. every critic's wrong. And uh, you should, I know I'm only, I'm speaking for myself now, meant to listen to that closer circle, but also at the same time, I want to be soft and pliable, like you're saying. And I'm finding myself asking the question, like, what's my role as a teacher? Like I'm noticing, like, I've never felt more aware that maybe heretical ideas are actually seizing the imagination of the people in my church. I've never felt more aware of that than I have now, but what's my job, you know? And so I'm just, I'm just, honestly, I don't even think the point is getting to a clear answer. Just what would it look like for young pastors, for men and women to go, I've got to figure out who I am or else I'm going to be pulled by the whim who I'm called to be in my unique gifting as it's worked out in the expression of being a pastor in the modern age, in the midst of the criticism and push and pull of our own people or the culture. Yes. And I I think biblically, that is the job of an elder is to guard and guide the life and the doctrine or teaching of a local church. So I do think that not just guiding, but guarding is an incumbent responsibility that we will stand before God for, which is why my personal opinion is those of us that are orthodox pastors in the way of Jesus, we have we have to talk about human sexuality we have to talk about some of these kind of current issues that I think are sweeping away the allegiance to Jesus as Lord of a, mm-hmm. a lot of people, lovely people in our churches. But if you set that kind of clear stuff aside, like do I talk about false teaching or ethics that do not align with Jesus' vision of human flourishing? Most of the problem is all the stuff that's gray, you know what I mean? And it's unclear. One of the great challenges for me, which is part of my part of my personal psychosis, um, meets the kind of pastoral call, is I think more than the vast majority of other vocations, or if you prefer, jobs, pastors, and you know some similar vocations would be like grade school teachers or something. 
but we face an extraordinary cascade of expectations that are placed upon us by the people we serve that are impossible to fulfill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these could be expectations relationally and that, you know what I mean? People expect more than you have the literal time, like in the time space continuum to offer people (laughs) expectations emotionally expectations theologically for you to think a certain thing or read the Bible in a certain way, about men or women or whatever, human sexuality, expectations politically about you should be involved politically or you should not, or if you should be involved, but you need to be involved in this specific way. You know, so you should do this as a church. You should not do this. You should gather. You should not gather. You should say this. You should. So many expectations. And there's no possible way, even if we had, you know, a thousand hours in every day, there's no possible way because a lot of people's expectations contradict each other. So that's just part of the reality that we have to face. As long as our pastoral strategy for being a good pastor is I'm going to meet everyone's expectations so everybody's happy with me, that is a strategy that is doomed to fail very quickly, you know? And even if you were to succeed in a hypothetical universe that does not have a time-space continuum, it would become failure. So we have to pretty early on accept, and for some of our personalities like my own, it is really a hard work of acceptance, that we are going to constantly upset people, disappoint people, let people down, and not meet all people's expectations. And beyond that, some people are going to think ill of us, and there's no possible way around that. And look at Jesus. They crucified him, and he was sinless. I'm not sinless. I'm imagining I'll get, (laughs) who knows what will happen to me. Look at Paul who was beat and tortured and cast out. Like he was not a popular guy. And I think increasingly the, the weird thing for us as pastors is we're entering a moment where our work is more polarizing than it's ever been. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I'm experiencing, we're just coming off. I finished this very intense teaching series called future church. And it was bizarre to see the, the polarizing. So for the core of our church who are faithful to Jesus in his way, it was like overwhelming positive response. Mm. Like this has changed my life. This is, I'm, I've like, God has done a new work in my life. But then for critics, mostly of the progressive variety, mostly outside of our church and online, that same teaching, which transformed one person's life and and in, in, in lit their heart up for following Jesus and with love for God became a point of resistance for another person and hostility against us. So I've never been in a moment like this where anything I say and do, some people, their life is changed by it and other people come to hate me and attack me for the exact same thing. And that's a really hard thing. Yeah. That's a new moment where the past, I felt like if I could nuance enough, if I could say it nice enough, good enough, gentle enough, clear enough, I could get 98% of people to like me and the two people, they don't like anything. Now it's more like anything I put out there is almost a form of psycho-spiritual warfare. This is going to transform some people's lives. This is going to cause certain people to come after me and attempt to not only attack me, but take me down. And man, that's a... That is not an easy task. And if your goal then, if your inner sense of peace is based on other people being at peace with you, man, you're never going to make it as a pastor or even as a human being in this new era. And so that's why I say this last year has been both excruciating and liberating because I've come to realize the idolatry that I didn't even know was there in my heart of other people thinking well of me. And this again mm-hmm. is part of my psychosis, part of my shadow. I wanna get an A plus in everything. I want everybody to think I'm good and I want everybody to be at peace with me. You know what I mean? There's no possible way to be an Orthodox <laughs> Christian in the public sphere or on the internet, which is where church is increasingly right now and have people think that way about me. You know, there's yeah. no possible way. and. To come to peace with that is actually excruciating, but it's actually liberating because I've been living, I realized, in bondage to the fear of other people disapproving of me and not meeting Mm -hmm. other people's expectations. So it's simple stuff, man. It's coming back to Jesus. I always do what pleases the Father. 
And at the end of his life, I have finished the work that the father gave me to do. So for me, I've just had to spend a lot more time early in the mornings in quiet prayer. My prayer has been way more about sitting and listening than saying anything. Mm. And just learning to say, I all just God, what would please you today? Because there's no way I'm going to please everybody. There's no way I'm going to please myself. So I might not even please most people. So what would please you today? And would you give me grace in my human faulting way to do that? Hmm. I'm a little behind you on the work because I'm feeling so, um, man, you said it like, I have inner peace when I'm at peace with at least most people, you know what I mean? Right. And, um, you know, I'm really, it's, yeah, that's where I'm at, man. And I wonder, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I'm, I'm, um, I'm feeling, you know, how we talked about this language. I don't know if we talked about it in our last conversation, but you and I've talked about the idea of a courageous fidelity to orthodoxy. Yes. Um, when I was chatting with Daryl the other day, he said, what about a compassionate and courageous fidelity orthodoxy? I love that because I want to be so compassionate. I never want to say something like, you know how there's a version of like speaking the truth that gets a kick out of offending people. Yeah, I don't absolutely. get a kick yeah, and I don't me, ever, and yeah, I know but, you don't, but no. I also feel like the part of me, I've almost elevated the, the kindness when the people and almost idolized maybe my, I felt like I was unique and that I could be like orthodox, but like more winsome and a bit more nuanced. I could win the yes. group. And I'm just, I'm finding nope. the need for, for courage, yes. courage and to deal with. So that's just where I'm at, man. I just and feel like personality. Don't you think some people, you know, yes. are, are wonderful Enneagram eight friends or whatever. They need to be told to be more compassionate. Hmm. And some of us need to be told to be more courageous. Yeah. And, and that's, that's and, what I'm feeling right now. And you'll have to know. Yeah. For me, the journey is toward, is toward courage. You know what I mean? Hmm. I would much rather just talk about Sabbath all the time and, you know, just help people calm. But I mean, this comes back to, you know, Keller, who's such a gift on so many levels has that great little insight about how to call an action. So there's tons of talk in both of our cities about compassion and kindness and love which by the way, are three different concepts. They're not the same thing. But Keller has that great thing about how both love and hate, and right now that word hate is used a lot. For example, if you even uh, think that maybe postmodern gender theory is not right, and not even like not right theologically, not right like scientifically or even you know basic human wisdom psychologically, if you would even lovingly, kindly, graciously question that or say, I'm not sure what I think about that. You're a bigot, you're hateful, whatever. But Keller's this great thing about how both love and hate require an agreed upon transcendent moral authority. Hmm. Meaning if to love someone is to will the good of someone, you have to know what is good for that person. So an easy example is if my 15 year old comes to me and says, dad, I want to do heroin. Even my most liberal secular friends would be like, yeah, you say no, and you don't even have to be <laughs> nice about it. You're just like, no, you're not doing that. Because most of us agree that heroin, in particular for a 15-year-old, is, is not good for them. Therefore, to be like chill and like, yeah, bro, whatever you do, you like follow your heart. That would not be loving. That would actually be narcissistic and, and flimsy on my part because it's not good for them. So the question becomes, what about issues where there isn't moral consensus? What if my 15-year-old hmm. came to me and said, Dad, I think I'm a girl in a woman's body. Or, Dad, I want to smoke pot, not heroin. Or, Dad, I want, you know what I mean? Whatever, an issue where there isn't a clear moral consensus in our generation. In order to call my response to him loving or hateful, you need access to what is good and what is evil, which is exactly what secular culture is utterly incapable mm. of giving us. There's And there's no metaphysical grounding whatsoever at an intellectual level for calling certain actions loving, even for human rights from a secular perspective. And this is the real gift of the Christian tradition and of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus, is we have access to a transcendent moral authority beyond us. So all that to say, you know, <laughs> 
people often think that telling the truth is unkind, but that's only if the truth is not rooted in goodness. If the mm. truth is rooted in goodness, it's the kindest thing that you can say or do. Mm. So really, oh. some of this is like, do we actually believe and trust in Jesus and mm -hmm. in his teachings? You're approaching a sabbatical. When do you go on sabbatical? October 23rd, but who is counting? You're, I know you're counting and I, like, I'm like just excited for you, man. I know it's like an end of a finish line of a crazy yeah. 18 months and I'm excited for you. And I heard you say that you had a previous sabbatical and in that time, God dealt with things in your heart. I think you use the language of even anger as one of the themes that God dealt with in that last sabbatical. As you look at this next sabbatical, tell us a bit about it. Like what, what it looks like for you to prepare for it, to organize it. And yeah, I'm just curious. I know you, you're so thoughtful and intentional about these things. I'd love to hear how you're approaching it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a sabbatical uh, eight years ago now, and it was a kind of before and after life-changing experience. Sabbatical is not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet, you know, but it does create the space for God to do some very deep things in you if you open to him. And yeah, that was a transformative experience. And here I am eight years later in a different but similar place, you know, so my next sabbatical will be much longer. I'm going to take a long, long break and on purpose. Um, and of course, rest is a part of it, you know, after the exhaustion of the last 18 months. And, you know, I, I go on sabbatical a couple of weeks after my 18th anniversary since we planted the church. So it'll be kind of a long 18 year run, you know, after a long 18 months after the end of it. But this time around, I think there's really a lot more work of healing to be done. Hmm. You know, I'm not just exhausted from the last year and a half. I'm feeling pretty wounded and even wounded by my church, who is wonderful. My church is lovely. And that's not a pity party or an indictment on them. I actually think that getting wounded by the people you serve is part of the pastoral call. I've been deeply shaped. I read this little book, um, last summer, and I wouldn't even necessarily recommend the book, but it was on like basically about Pauline theology. It was a weird academic little book, Pauline theology of pastoring. Like what's Paul's theology of what it means to be a pastor. It was really interesting. And there was this chapter in there on Paul's theology of leadership is vicarious suffering. Mm. And of course, two Corinthians would be the kind of great case text for this, but there's lots of other places too. Paul seems, you know, his whole thing, like death is at work in us, but life is at work in you, or we are comforted so that you can receive comfort. You know, he has this, we have this treasure in jars of clay is this whole theology of how he's allowing his suffering for the gospel and for orthodoxy and for standing for truth was full of meaning for him. Hmm. It was vicarious, not in the sense that he was suffering for the atonement of the churches he planted, but in a Christ-like way, he was suffering in their place. He was allowing um, persecution, pressure, emotional pain, exhaustion, and in his case, death and martyrdom and torture into his body in order for healing and life and forgiveness and freedom to flow through him to the churches that he was pastoring. Mm. And this is the Christ-like path of the cruciform way and the downward kind of spirituality of descent, you know, that as we, pastoring is suffering love. And as we get to participate in the sufferings of Christ, which I've never really understood that until the last year, I really feel like I have been participating in the sufferings of Christ. I'm not sinless like Christ. I've said and done stupid things that were well worthy of draw drawing people's ire. I'm not talking about that stuff. But I've also stood for Jesus and for orthodoxy and for his church and for his call to discipleship and obedience and have been at an emotional level, not a physical level, persecuted for that and hurt for that and attacked for that and slandered for that. And that's a way of me allowing that pain into my body and that wounding into my body so that healing can flow 
to others, you mm. know, and there's that odd psychology where people attack their caregivers and that's actually because they feel safe with them. And we often get attacked by the people that we want to serve because they're full of pain and they need somewhere to offload that pain. And our job is to be, to absorb that and to be the place where that anger, hate, acrimony, where it ends and to not, you know, this is, I mean, I think it was Tyson, our mutual friend who said, our job right now is to be crucified in public and not retaliating kind. Wow. And I think that's part of our job, you know, and I'm probably sounding, making it sound more heroic and making my sound, myself sound like way more of an innocent victim than I actually am. I am <laughs> full of, of, of legitimate things to criticize and critique. But I do think that's part of the pastoral call in this season. Mm-hmm. And if what we value in life is looking and feeling good, then this is a great time to stop being a pastor. But if we want to follow the cruciform way and we want to be free from our own need to yeah. look and feel good, which is really the great oppression, it's really the great bondage, is constantly having to look mm-hmm. and feel good. If we want to be free of that to where looking and feeling good, if it happens, is a gift, but it's not required for us to be deeply at peace. That's it, man. And that's far, that's way over my, that's punching way over my weight. You know what I mean? Like I'm not there yet. I remember when my spiritual director was talking to me about how, you know, the natural human bent is we feel okay in our inner world when our outer world is all at peace and okay. Yeah. And he just said to me, quote, you must mature beyond this. Mm. And he defined maturity as being able to calmly hold reality in your mind and be at peace. So can we be in a world where I know that preaching this Sunday is going to get people who are really mad at me or even hate me? And I know that if I make this decision, I will get a lot of people mad and some people will even leave my church. Can I hold that reality calmly in my mind and be deeply at peace and grateful and in the moment with Jesus and my community? That. I think that's something of a vision of what maturity looks like for a pastor. And I'm not there yet, but I'd like to think that I'm on the very long path. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I am. I'm really grateful. I tuned in a little bit to the future church series and I felt strengthened and emboldened to have another pastor in the Pacific Northwest preaching what I feel like, is counterculture, is Jesus honoring, uh, is thoughtful and nuanced. I just feel really grateful for you doing that and realizing that you're taking hits and you're not asking for sympathy. I don't hear that at all, but you're taking hits because of the platform that some of us aren't. Um, and just really grateful though, because it's really emboldening for me. And this might not make it, this part might not make it into the actual shared podcast, but when I think about taking hits, like you described, I almost feel like I'm going through this thing in my head where I'm like, I'll take it for me, but I feel like afraid for my kids and my wife. Um, like it's totally fine if people hate me in Vancouver, but I just don't want my kids to get made fun of at school because their dad is preaching. Have you ever felt that or, or processed that? Yes. And that's where I think, yeah, man, and that's a really tender place. And I think that's where we have to broaden our experience of family. Mm. And our family has to be more than just our wife and our kids or our spouse and our kids. You know, it has to be our church family and our inner kind of core of leaders. I mean, the, the, Like other than morning prayer and weekly therapy, the thing that has gotten me through the pain of the last year has been just deep friendship with our elders. We have this little core group of about, I mean, about a dozen of us kind of men and women who kind of are the, we have lots of leaders at our church, but are kind of that core, um, whatever you want to call it, elder leader level kind of team. And I don't know if I should admit this, but we would just once a month, <laughs> we're together weekly for a meeting and prayer. And then once a month, we would just, I think I can say this now, we would just break the rules and we just get together 
And we were really careful, but, you know, we just felt like there was a moral need for us to hold each other. And so we'd eat together and we'd cry together and we'd laugh together and we'd drink wine together and we'd sit outside around a fire and we'd hold each other's pain and we'd process whoever had been attacked that week or criticized that week or suffered a disappointment that week. And we'd just speak life over that person, build that person up. And like, this is one of the few things, most things I have to like, be careful not to idolize and like, oh, it was amazing. This was actually amazing. It was actually like some of the highlights of my year. Mm. And just knowing that, you know what, we, we need a place to discharge the pain and it needs to be broader than just our spouse and our kids. And to realize, man, I can discharge it in prayer, like the Psalms of Lament. And here's a little group of people that I can discharge that pain with mm. and be, and literally be held by and cry with if that's our thing, you know? So I do think that if our children know it's just my dad and I'm getting attacked for that, yeah, that's really toxic. If they're like, no, we are a part of a family wow. and a community. And there might only be 30 of us, but you know what? There are billions of us down through history and around the world. And we're actually the future rulers of the kingdom of God under Jesus, which is all about Jesus and not about us. And God is restoring us for his glorious destiny in his great universe. And we know the end of the story. And this is a sad chapter in the story, but it is sure as heck not the end. And Mm. we are full of hope. Even if the 30 never gets beyond 30 in a city like Vancouver, Portland, or whatever, we're full of hope for our destiny in God's glorious universe. Mm. So I think to help people understand they're a part of a family, both relationally through close relationships and churches and leadership teams, and then globally and historically, like this thing, the church of, as you said before, and I think in the, before we were recording, the church of Jesus is doing just fine. I'm, we might not be, and our yeah. local churches might really be struggling. The church of Jesus, capital C, is doing just great. And it's, it's you know, it's marching on, as the old hymn would say. And there's, oh, there's, there's great hope for our children to realize, man, we are part of, that's why I'm so not secretarian in my vision of church, you know, and uh, I'm just so, I want my children to realize this thing is global and it's historic mm. and it's unstoppable and it has sad chapters in the story, but we know how it ends and it's good. Beautiful. Hey, last time you were with us, I got you to do like a book recommendation list and you were like, oh, you, you, you hadn't prepared for it, but you did it. And it was, it was, it got a very, like very positive response. And so that was your 2020 book recommendations. So here we are in 2021, uh, which is always a mental exercise for me to say the year accurately because it's all been blurred because of the last craziness. So we're in 2021. I think we're like, I love that we thought COVID would follow like the Gregorian calendar. Yeah. I thought it was like January (laughs) January. 1. We'd be like, all right, we're moving out of COVID now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, or somehow with like the change in the U.S. election, but that would yeah. a new president. It would just all. But no, somehow these things don't just magically change. But here we are in 2021, and uh, so you don't have to give us the the full recommendation. But it's like John Mark Comer's top books of 2021 slash end of 2020 so far. Hit me with them. Like the top books that I have read recently, and no. or the ones you think are. Imp- would be a good recommendation for people today. Um, okay, so those are two separate questions. So I'm just making it you, easy for you. <laughs> yeah, let let me give you a couple really good books that I read this year so far. Um, probably my favorite thing so far will take you about 20 minutes to read, and it's that little ebook by Tim Keller, "How to Reach the West Again." Mm. Have you come across that or read no. that? It's no. an ebook. It's free. It's like 50 pages long. You can read it in 20, 30 minutes. I think it's the best thing Keller has ever done. Wow. I, I read it and like felt like I had an encounter with the spirit of God. It was just like lit my heart. Oh, up. I can't wait to read it. Yep. Uh, and a lot of it's about kind of evangelism and what does the church look like moving forward with the level of hostility, but it's concise. It's, it's fantastic. How to reach the West again. Um, I reread, so I've been Utter, I reread through a little trilogy by Martin Laird that starts with the book Into the Silent Land. Are you familiar with him? No. He's a Catholic scholar, intellectual. 
He is, I would imagine, it's hard to tell from his book, I would imagine he's probably on the progressive side of theology, which I very much am not. And so there's quite a few theological things in it that I would take issue with. And so I would, I would not, I don't endorse the theology of it, but he has a little trilogy on contemplative prayer that is stunning. And the first mm. book, which is the best-selling one, is called Into the Silent Land, and there's two others after it. And I've read it about, I've read Into the Silent Land, I think seven times, and I've read the trilogy wow. now a couple times. And bro, it is transformed my prayer life and how I think about a lot of different things. So without endorsing the theology, um, he doesn't, he's not a charismatic, he doesn't believe in manifest presence, and I would imagine he'd be more progressive on ethical issues. But the book's not really about that. It's more about like some of the inner psychology of contemplative prayer. Gorgeous. And contemplative practices for me have just grounded me with the hmm. criticism, the attack, the anxiety. Where is my identity? And who am I? And how do I find calm? And some of his stuff, he gets into identity and thoughts, feelings, your sense of self. I mean, some of his insight is just extraordinary. Mm. And he just has such a rich grasp of the saints down through kind of church history that it's just a rich, I mean, just for the quotes alone, it's a rich read. Third, here's like, bro, this, this here's a 90-page a book you can read in an hour that will blow your You're being mind. so kind to us with these short books. I love it. Blow your mind. This is the third and final wreck. A Beginner's Introduction to the Philokalia by Anthony Canarius. Bro, so I've, I've been long captivated by the Desert Fathers and Mothers, by not just their spirituality, but their psychology. There's a couple of their writers, like Evagrius of Ponticus, that I'd never even heard of a couple of years ago, and now is like one of my North Star thinkers. He has some wacky things to say, but man, does he have some good things to say. Um, a bunch of his work is kind of the, the basis of my next upcoming book. And if you kind of trace the contemplative tradition, it was rich in the church. And then in the, not the Protestant Catholic split, but the earlier kind of East-West church split around the turn of the millennium, that contemplative tradition mostly ended up on the Eastern side of that split and what we would call Eastern Orthodoxy now. So a lot of it was lost by the Catholic tradition. And then in the Protestant Catholic divide, almost all of the contemplative hmm. tradition was lost in the Protestant vein. So we're now like two degrees removed from the tragic kind of divorces in the church of the, the deep well of the desert fathers and mothers. The Philokalia is a like massive five volume, like take you a couple of years to read it, compedium of all of the best work of the contemplative saints over almost 2000 years of church history, starting with like second, third century desert fathers and mothers going up to like 19th century Russian mystics. So it starts and it's just rich. Um, obviously that would take you a couple of years to read the whole thing. I've not read the whole thing. It's like, that's one of my main goals for my sabbatical is to read the Philokalia or at least get a good chunk of it in. But there's a little 90 page booklet called in a beginner's introduction to the philokalia that is basically a summary of contemplative theology which is really a spiritual really theology of prayer and of spiritual formation how we change and grow and mature that is it's like it's like almost like reading a systematic theology from the fourth century that's like nothing you've ever heard all, all that to say, read the beginner's introduction to the philokalia blow your mind and then on the racial stuff my favorite, book I've read in many months is Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman, which was written in the 1940s. I've had a number of kind of leaders of color that I love and respect say, this is the book you need to read. Apparently, Dr. King used to carry it around on his person. Mm. And it's another short read, 100 pages, defies the categories of critical theory or liberation theology or this or that, just brutally honest but deeply insightful wow. and transcends kind of the ideological categories that dominate everything right now. I just found it arresting. It was hard mm. for me to read, but man, I just, I, I learned a lot. It was deeply, deeply insightful. Oh, thank you so much, man. Thank you for your time. Before you go, you've got a new book coming out, Live No Lies. Give us the like elevator, big why behind the book. I can't wait. I've got a little sneak peek into it. I can't wait for people to see it. It's going to be so yeah. well received. I don't know, man. It may be the end of my writing career. It's, uh, 
I pray it is both compassionate and courageous. It is, it's an intense book, man. I've never worked this hard on any, it's my most ambitious project to date by far. I've never worked this hard in any previous writing project. It's been a beast to kind of give birth to. The, um, the basic book is built around, you know, there's that saying, the problem is not so much that we tell lies, but that we live them. We all live from these mental maps of reality in our attempt to kind of let our soul journey toward goodness. And often those mental, oftentimes those mental maps go horribly off the rails and we end up allowing lies into our mind and into our body. And then we begin to live into those lies and they actually start to deform mm. the inner deepest part of who we are, whether those be lies kind of from the external world of the culture wars or the internal world of our family of origin and the narratives that by which we live and the thoughts that come into our mind and the interpretations of pain and suffering that often come to define who we are. And so Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set mm. you free. For him, you know, the primary problem is that we're in bondage to lies. And the primary solution is the freedom of the truth of Jesus. So um, basically, it's, it's kind of about that. But through the lens of my attempt to update the ancient Christian paradigm of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, for people like us, followers of Jesus, living in secular and increasingly sophisticated cultural contexts that think the world, the flesh, and the devil are basically nonsense from the pre-modern world that we scoff at now. And my case is they are very much alive and well, and their primary tactic against us is lies, is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires in our heart that become normalized in the culture around us. So it's an exploration of all of that, man. So it's a bit bold, maybe Can't the wait. last book I ever write. No. But I'm releasing it into the world. No, it's this good. September. Thank you for writing books. They're so helpful. I was just rereading Garden City this week. I'm so thankful for the work you oh, do. I'm so sorry. For the deep work. And uh, <laughs> thank you for all of your time today, man. Have a great evening and we'll catch up soon. Thanks. You got it. I love you, Jason. Miss you already. What a great conversation. Thank you so much, John Mark Comer, for joining us today. We are so excited to see what's coming up for Practicing the Way, and we just loved having you on with us. Um, Jason, I know you loved that Keller ebook. Did you get a chance to read it yet? Or Well, he busted me on the conversation. He's like, have you heard of it? I was like, no, I had never even heard of it. So since the conversation, it's been a bit of time since we recorded that, I was able to download it, the ebook, and read it. But then also they have a podcast, which is really awesome. Like Keller reads the whole ebook. It's short, simple. So I listened to it as well. And it's a really important book. And it really summarizes some of the movements that we're all experiencing. And so as a team, we wanted to figure out how to invite pastors into a deeper conversation. And so we're going to be hosting a bit of a conversation over time on our Facebook group. So we've got this closed Facebook group for Canadian pastors. You can search CC line on Facebook and find it. I think you even have to like, ver like verify to some degree that you're a pastor and then you get in and it's like a, it's like an exclusive club. Like, yeah. you know, that exclusive club at Disneyland that yeah. you can only get into. It's like that, totally. but for pastors on Facebook in Canada, we're going to be having a conversation on there <laughs> about the ebook and there's lots of other mm -hmm. good connection happening on there. So you can check that out. That's so awesome. Before we jump into Anne's conversation with Karina Shea, Jason, I'm dying to know what is the update with this incubator? Uh, new yeah. thing coming up. What's happening? Give us the latest scoop. What's uh, going thanks on? Thanks for asking. Yeah, I know I said at the beginning of the episode, that I'm just so excited because I feel like this September, some of the things we're talking about, these stories we're sharing uh, and this, this incubator, it, we're beginning to kind of express the different things we've had in our heart with CC line. And really the vision is to see the hopeful future for the, you know, a hopeful future for the church in Canada. So one of the ways we want to do that is to create this really, really kind of intense custom program. Like it's only for 10 to 15 people. It's for young pastors between the age of 25 and 40 years old who are leading a church, maybe leading a site, or are, in, are part of succession planning for a key church in Canada. And so applications are open. It's a two-year program. And it's really intense. Like we're dealing with the heart, like what's going on in our heart. We're dealing with our leadership style. Uh, we're going to journey over two years. We have retreats, visit some cities where there's dynamic work happening in local churches for inspiration. And then one thing that's really exciting is just this week, we're able to confirm some of our guests that we're having. A component of the incubator is like a monthly online guest component. So there's 
time with guests, time with Q&A, and then some, some debrief after with the students. And some of the guests that were confirmed, I mean, it's just great. Alex Seeley, Ken Shigematsu, oh, John Tyson, her. Mark mm-hmm. Sayers, Daniel Strickland, Daniel M, Tim Hughes, Shayla Visser, John Mark Comer. Some of the topics that are going to be covered is patterns wow. of renewal, vision for family discipleship, uh, naivety in leadership, developing a rule of life, leading staff and teams. The deadline for applications. Now, if, if people aren't, if you want to know more about this program, you can go to ccln.ca slash incubator. The deadline is June 30th to apply and the intake is only 10 to 15 people. And so get your application in and there's been some incredible applicants so far. We're really excited for what this means. Amazing. Well, thanks for that update. That sounds incredible. And I'm really looking forward to see, you know, it roll out and see what God's going to do with it. It's going to be amazing. Well, in a few weeks, we have VJ Krishnan coming from the Well Church in Toronto. Jason, I know you guys had an amazing conversation together talking about, you know, how our churches move forward um, from this pandemic and what that looks like now in light of it and what we've been through in the last couple of years. Um, But before you guys go, we're going to listen to a five minute conversation Anne had with Karina Shea from Toronto. So take a listen. It's amazing. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Welcome, Karina. I'm so excited to introduce you to this audience of CCLN. We are so glad that you could join us today. Uh, Karina Shea, pastors uh, in Toronto, tell us about you. Tell us about your ministry, what you do there, and how did you end up in church? What is your story? Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Karina Shea, and I actually serve as the lead pastor of Parkway Forest Community Church, right in Toronto. We're right in the heart of North York, if that means anything to anybody. (laughs) And what that means is we're in a very vibrant, multicultural, uh, socioeconomically diverse community. A lot of new immigrants come to uh, this part of the city as a first step. So a lot of new immigrants who are educated, who are here looking for a new life and in pandemic life, that's been harder, but, uh, but th- that's where we're situated. And we are actually the product or the fruit of earlier labors. We were part of a, a larger church. We were a satellite and we were launched as a church plant just actually three years ago after having been in that part of the city uh, for a number of years. And so tell us about that community. How do you do church in that community? Let's talk about maybe pre-pandemic and then now what's going on. Yeah, well, we started out actually with very humble beginnings. Uh, Originally, we were church in the playground, and that was actually not my brainchild. That was uh, people who came before me in this area of ministry. They kind of traveled through the city to areas that were receptive to the gospel and just did church in playgrounds around the city and uh, to families, ministered to families and their children. And then eventually, uh, in our situation, it became a church satellite and so we were established there as a church, and then we we built we built into that community. And so we have been there for years, building bridges into the community, and uh, and just loving it with the gospel of Jesus, and doing our best to serve it. I love that because you didn't wait for your community to come into your church building, but you went to them. And loving on your community has been really important. Let's rewind a little bit and tell us, how did you end up in ministry? Did you grow up in the church? What does that look like for you? Yeah, I did not. I grew up in Toronto, but I didn't grow up in the church in Toronto. Uh, I middle-class, second-generation Chinese. Uh, I was actually introduced to the church in high school And I really expected to save the world in a very different way. I thought I was going to become a lawyer, become a diplomat, save the world. Uh, (laughs) God had other plans, other ways for me to maybe save the world, help save the world. And I became a pastor. So I've been pastoring for over 20 years and I can't imagine doing anything else. I can see the love for your, what you're doing and, and for your community um, in your eyes, when you start telling these stories, it's very contagious. And so what do you, what do you love the most? Tell us a story about something that you do that you're just so passionate about. Sure. Well, one of, one of the key ways we, we love into our community 
is we try to find ways to just do that, just love them. We do present the gospel when we have the opportunity to do so, but we're really about ministering to the hearts and souls of the people in our neighborhood. And so, for instance, every Easter pre-COVID, we would actually have a very small service for ourselves as we are setting up for the bigger service. And for us, what that looks like on Easter Sunday is we host a chocolate Easter egg hunt for about 400 to 500 kids and families in our community. Yeah, they all come flooding out of the buildings. They see us setting up in the parking lot and we don't even have to uh, send out flyers anymore. They just wait. Easter Sunday comes, the kids and families come flooding. And then we have a massive chocolate Easter egg hunt. And we have the gospel according to puppets. We have kids worship. Uh, Nothing for the adults except for a community lunch after. And then we serve a halal meal for the community because most of our neighbors are Muslim. And then we just uh, send them away with ice cream and blessings and invite them back to visit us again and and some do to mostly just to our programs not to Sunday service but they'll come to our ESL program they'll send our kids to our midweek program and you know we just we just love the community and we are so grateful that they seem to love us back because they trust us with their kids (laughs) they trust us enough to eat our food so we really love that opportunity to meet our neighbors and by word of mouth now Uh, It's become a a big community event and everybody knows the church does this and people always ask, you know, well, how much does it cost or what do we have to do? And, and the answer is you just have to come and enjoy and know that we love you. How beautiful is that? You're known by your love. That is living out. That is living out. (laughs) Ah, that's this is beautiful. What is your hope and prayer for the church in Canada? Do you know what I would love to just see is the church be that light that we're supposed to be. I would love to see every young person, every child, every adult experience just the life-changing truth of the gospel and find shalom and find healing uh, in our midst. I, I really believe that people, when they are searching for truth and they find it in Jesus, I mean, that, that moment, you know, the light goes on and stays on, that moment of transformation I mean, that's what we live for, right? Just to see people live into the hope and, and live into that truth that Jesus has given us eternity in our hearts. I mean, that's, that would change everything for every city in Canada. And that's, that's the dream. I think that's what I long for most is people coming to that transforming, that, that, that moment when peace breaks through and hope becomes uh, the undercurrent of their life. That's the dream. Beautiful. Oh, you're so inspiring. Thank you, Karina, for joining us today. I know that people that are listening in are will be inspired by your words and how you're living out loving, uh, loving your community, loving people. So thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a blessing for me. 